This is episode 46 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 46 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat once again with George Weigel, the distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He has written a new book, The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. We discuss why he wrote the book, who it's for, and how every Christian, not just the Pope, has the responsibility to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Let's sit down in the virtual chat room for this delightful conversation. Well, George, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Your new book, The Next Pope, presents your reflections on some of the challenges facing the church and what spiritual and personal qualities the next bishop of Rome will need to have, as well as some of the concrete actions he will need to undertake to guide the church. I guess my first question is, who is this book for? Who's the audience? Good to be back with you, Ken. Thanks thanks for having me. Uh, I wrote this book actually for everyone in in the church. It's a reflection on a church in mission through the prism of the office of Peter, the Petrine ministry, the papacy, which is why it's called the next pope, the office of Peter and a church in mission. Uh, There are particular audiences that I think will be uh, especially interested in this. Uh, Ignatius Press was kind enough to send a copy of the book to every voting member of the College of Cardinals and to 20 cardinals who have lost their vote but are still influential members of the college. But this is really a book uh, that attempts to think through in a synthetic way uh, where we are as as a world church in this third decade of the 21st century, where the church is flourishing and why, where the church is more abundant or dying and why. And then I ask the question, what might the next Pope do to encourage what's living and to revivify what's dying? But it's really a book for everybody. Uh, This the Catholic Church is not simply the papacy. Right. The papacy doesn't exhaust the meaning of the Catholic Church. So it's really a reflection on all of us uh, at this interesting cultural moment, challenging cultural moment, when we have to recognize that we're not living in Christendom times, mm-hmm. we're living in apostolic times. Yeah. The culture isn't transmitting the faith. In many respects, the culture is hostile to the faith. So we have to all put on our apostolic running shoes and and get about the business of of the new evangelization. Well, as you mentioned, you know, the the church is not just the pope, but 
the office of the papacy and the men who hold it are a source of endless fascination for for many. Uh, In recent years, the popular understanding of who the pope is and what a pope can do have inspired you know, flights of fancy from screenwriters at HBO and Netflix. And, and of course, there's another recently published book that actually discusses potential candidates among the College of Cardinals. How does your book fit into this current of interest? And why does this seem like such a hot topic right now? Well, I don't think my book fits into Netflix or HBO. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's not going to become the next uh, the next Netflix film. No, I don't think uh, I don't think that's on the cards. <laughs> um, I I thought it was important to try to elevate the conversation about the papacy beyond above the kind of nonsense you see on HBO and Netflix, however amusing or well produced it may be. Uh, I happen to know the two men who were the characters in the two popes. And, you know, that's just, it's, as I wrote in a column, it's baloney brilliantly acting. <laughs> I'm trying to get above the baloney. I'm also trying to get beyond or above uh, the horse race handicap. Uh, a conclave is a unique microculture. Anyone who tries to read it ahead of time and make predictions Uh, as I said in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, usually ends up with egg on their face and a negative balance sheet on their betting uh, accounts. (laughs) Um, This is a book about an agenda. It's the agenda, I think, that the experience of the past 50 years in the church has defined for us. I'm simply trying to synthesize that and uh, give it some concrete specificity in terms of what I believe are the qualities necessary in a future pope and some of the things that I think he might uh, be well advised uh, to do. So um, I'm hoping this is a bit more elegant than HBO and Netflix, and it takes us beyond horse race handicapping uh, into thinking about something for which we're all responsible, namely a church in mission. Mm -hmm. The Office of Peter has specific responsibilities for that mission, but fundamentally we all share in that mission. And that's one of the things the next Pope needs to constantly remind us of. Mm -hmm. Well, now, in each of the 12 chapters of the book, you explore particular areas that you think the next Pope should address, including the the never-ending need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, ecclesial and administrative structures, world affairs, and religious dialogue. But the chapter that really grabbed me was the one on the lay apostolate. You you speak in there about the Second Vatican Council's um, focus on the universal call to holiness, and that and then what that actually should look like. Uh, and you give a bit of a fervorino on the Marian dimension of discipleship and how her this Marian model can inform other roles in the church, like the Petrine ministry. Can you unpack that a bit? Because I found that to be a particularly moving chapter. Thank you. Uh, in the little section on the next Pope in the Lay Apostolate, I suggest, as you remind me, that the next pope would do well to deepen uh, 
uh, and thicken, if you will, the Marian profile of the lay apostolate. There's, there's nothing original to me about this. It's John Paul II sure. via Hans Urs von Balthasar. And Balthasar's claim, which I think is accurate, that Mary's fiat, be it done unto me according to your word, uh, makes her both the first of disciples and the paradigm of all discipleship. Discipleship begins with an act of obedience to the will of God for our lives. But then I stretch that out a bit uh, in a way that uh, perhaps takes us a bit beyond Balthazar um, to say that we get another insight into this Marian profile of lay apostolate at uh, the wedding feast of Cain where we get the last recorded words of Our Lady in the New Testament, do whatever he tells you. Now, um, preachers working with that text often focus on the miracle. This is, as St. John says, the first of his signs. Mm -hmm. I think the really crucial uh, word in there is the pronoun. Do whatever he tells you, because that, suggests that Mary's role in the economy of salvation, in the history of salvation, is always to point beyond herself to her son. And by pointing us to her son, who is both son of God and son of Mary, she points us into the two fundamental mysteries of Christian faith, the incarnation and the Trinity. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be letting the truth of Jesus Christ, the model of the human, uh, the model of man fully alive, be experienced through our discipleship so that others are led into uh, the beautiful realities of the incarnation. God enters history in the person of his son to point that history back on course and the mystery of the Trinity, that God himself is a communion of self-giving love and receptivity, uh, into which communion we are called uh, as our ultimate destiny. So um, I think John Paul II and Hans Urs von Balthasar gave popes of the future a lot to work with here. And this is also a, a response to, you know, certain feminist uh, concerns heard in the Catholic Church today. fact of the matter is that Mary, a lay woman without office, <laughs> is the paradigm of, of Christian discipleship. Yeah. So when I hear people talking about it's important, you know, for women to be in decision-making uh, capacities in the church, well, first of all, women are in decision-making capacities in the church and our universities and our hospitals and our schools and our parishes. Uh, so, I mean, there's a kind of falsehood about, you know, there's a complete disempowerment of women in the church. But the most important empowerment in the church is the power to be an evangelist, to point beyond yourself and say, do whatever he tells you. And if we forget that, we're lost, because then we simply reduce the church to another non-governmental organization in which people are scrambling for the capacity to tell other people what to do, 
and that is simply not an index of Christian discipleship. Anyone who thinks that flying a desk in the Vatican is more important than introducing others to the to G- friendship with Jesus Christ has not really grasped the uh, the meaning of the gospel, yeah. or their their responsibility as a baptized member. I, well, I would say so. Yeah. yeah. From your perspective as a Catholic author and you know biographer and stuff, how is this book a, an exercise of your own lay apostolate? Well, when I decided to do this earlier this year, I, I did it, first of all, I hope, as a service to those who will be responsible for electing the next book. Um, I thought a brief agenda, a kind of uh, description of an ideal pope might help focus their discussions. Um, I thought it was important, as I said a moment ago, to elevate this conversation. There's all sorts of jockeying going on that usually begins two minutes after the (laughs) Pope is elected. People are jockeying and speculating about who his successor will be. You can't really have that conversation seriously until you think through the the job description, uh, the prior uh, questions, what, what is needed right now, as I put it at the beginning of this book, what is the Holy Spirit teaching the church right now, and what is he asking uh, of the holder of this Petrine office at this very, very challenging uh, moment in, in history, which is also a moment pregnant with possibility. I mean, the world is really in a mess today because of false stories about what human beings are, where we come from, what our destiny is, we've got the true story. We've got the story. It's the story of creation, fall, promise, prophecy, incarnation, redemption, sanctification, the kingdom of God. That's the real story. That's the true human story. And we need to get about the business of um, inviting people into that story. And that's the fundamental thing that, that the Pope must do. I was struck in writing this uh, by John Paul II's inaugural homily on October 22nd, 1978. Everybody remembers that for the money quote, be not afraid, Mm -hmm. uh, repeated a half a dozen times. Uh, What's really interesting to me now in the retrospect of so many years is the first line. He begins that homily with a quote from St. Peter. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the first thing John Paul II says in his inaugural homily is is a Petrine confession of Christological, Christ-centered faith. That's a pretty good template for the papacy for all time, it seems to me, and one of the things popes ought to do in light of Luke twenty-two thirty-two, and you, Peter, are to strengthen your brethren, is to empower all of the people of the church to make that confession of Christological faith uh, as, in, in, as, in as compelling a way as each of us can in our unique circumstances. 
Well, and I noticed, of course, you do have a chapter in there about the uh, importance of the Pope's job to propose the Christian anthropology as well. Well, this is another uh, huge challenge. Uh, it's particularly acute in the Western world. I don't think this is a problem in sub-Saharan Africa, where the church is growing tremendously these days. But we've just had the U.S. Supreme Court tell us that in certain circumstances, um, to cite what for millennia has been understood to be the rational view of, of human beings, which the Bible expressed as male and female who created uh, to cite that in making certain decisions involving employment uh, is an act of discrimination that viol- violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, beneath that really strange decision uh, is, I believe, a kind of anthropology in which sheer willfulness is put at the center of the human condition. I am not what I see in the mirror. I am not what my body tells me I am. I am whatever I say I am. This is not a prescription for a healthy democracy. It's not even a prescription for civilization. You just cannot deny reality. Reality is going to win or it's going to, the denial of reality is going to cause terrible suffering and um, create, you know, hellish situations. So what do we do about that? We don't foam at the mouth. We don't go into doomism. Uh, We offer Jesus Christ as the model of the fully and truly human. Uh, We lift up the saints, men and women, as models of human flourishing, even under the most difficult of circumstances, the martyrs, uh, as exemplars of what it really means to lead uh, a truly human life. That seems to me to be so much more compelling than this essentially infantile nonsense that I am what I say I am. Or I want what I want, and I want it now, and it's the state's job to make sure that I get it now. That's a a two-year-old concept of freedom. Uh, It's not a mature concept of of freedom. So we've got a lot of repair work to do culturally, But I think the gospel understood in full and embraced in full, uh, enhanced, if you will, by the social doctrine of the church or spelled out in the social doctrine of the church, has given us a lot of instruments for doing that repair work. Well, one thing that I noticed you don't much address is the church in Asia, especially in China. Uh, In the chapter on world affairs, you do present an excellent analysis of the necessity uh, for the church to appoint her own bishops without interference from governments and totalitarian regimes. But I didn't see much about the work of evangelization and the experience of the faithful in the Far East. Is there a reason for this seeming omission? Well, I, you know, I've, I've pointed to the vitality of the church in Africa. I pointed to this problem, particular problem in China. Uh, This book, was intended to be short and and not to get down into the weeds of a lot of situations. Sure. Uh, the China situation is getting, has actually gotten materially worse since I wrote the book. 
six months ago, but I think that reinforces what I said when I said we cannot give thuggish regimes the power to influence in any way uh, the appointment of the leaders of the church. And, and we do that first because it doesn't work. But more, even more fundamentally, we do that because it harms the church's evangelical mission. I mean, I have been writing for at least 10 years that whenever the Chinese communist moment passes, as it will at, at some point, and China fully opens itself to the world, uh, China will be the greatest field of Christian mission since the Europeans came to the Western Hemisphere in the, in the 16th century. The religious communities that will have an advantage in that are those that have resisted the now defunct Chinese communist regime. By allying itself to that really wicked regime, Vatican is making a serious evangelical mistake. It's not just a diplomatic mistake. It's not just a violation of canon law. It's not just a violation of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. It's an evangelical mistake where we are uh, depreciating the attractiveness of the Catholic Church by embracing, at however much of a distance, but nonetheless embracing this regime for the sake of what? For the sake of imagining that this gives the Holy See a place at the table and, uh, with China in some future diplomatic arrangement. Well, I'm sorry, Chinese communists don't give a tinker's damn what the Holy See thinks about anything. And to imagine that they do is simply fatuous. So this whole thing is misconceived. Um, John Paul II in the encyclical Radium Taurus Missio admitted that the great failure of Christian mission in the first two millennia of Christian history had been Asia, particularly East Asia. Uh, I think there'll be a great opportunity to do something about that in the uh, at, perhaps towards the end of this 21st century. But that can only be prepared by defending uh, religious freedom for all in China now. And, and unfortunately, the Holy See is not doing that very effectively at all. Well, asking a papal biographer this next question may seem a bit odd but it seems like there's a phenomenon in the church of selective ultramontanism, by which I mean that various vocal factions will shift from being very supportive of a current pope to quite dismissive or suspicious of his successor, and then perhaps shift back again to supportive when the holder of the office changes. I think there's no doubt that this can be seen in our own day. Is there anything the next pope can do to address the phenomenon? Uh Probably not too much, since this is a result of a kind of politicization of, of Catholic conversation. Yeah. Um, he might be helpful, the next pope, by saying what Cardinal Francis George said at his first press conference when he was named the Archbishop of Chicago. And, you know, the usual dumb question, are you a conservative or a liberal Catholic? Mm-hmm. And Cardinal George said, the Catholic Church doesn't do left and right. The Catholic Church does true and false. 
um, that's a good place to uh, to uh, start. Um, there is this really odd progressive Catholic ultramontanism of the moment in which people who spent the previous 35 years not simply challenging, but criticizing and even deprecating uh, the magisterium of John Paul II and Benedict XVI on some pretty core stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, now take offense when some people suggest that Pope Francis in his social doctrine, for example, is, you know, getting a bit out over his skis on, on some issues, uh, even if people say that in, in a respectful way. Um, I do suggest in the the book that the next pope should figure out a way to kind of downsize the papacy, uh, at least in people's imaginations. The pope was never the center of the Catholic imagination until the mid-19th century. Uh, I would bet you that 90 to 95% of the 35,000 Catholics living in the 13 colonies at the time of the American Revolution, 90 to 95% of them had no idea who the Pope was. If you said, who's the Pope, they would not have said Pius VI. Uh, The Pope was just not there in in the Catholic imagination. It was Pius IX who became the first Pope who became a huge figure in Catholics' understanding of themselves and of the church. He was the first Pope that people had pictures of in their homes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Take a very uh, domestic example. Uh, This has gotten to the point now where, um, you know, a lot of people think the papacy is the church and the church is the papacy. And that's simply not true. Papacy is an essential part of the constitution of the church. But I think, and I have suggested this to audiences who are concerned about things in recent years, if you'd stop obsessing on the papacy and look at all the good things that are going on around the church and really have not much to do with the exercise of the Petrine office, um, you might feel a little better about things. Uh, this is going to be tough to do in media terms because it's easy to identify church. And, you, know, you get this complex community of 1.3 billion people. How in the world do you talk about that? And then you get this one guy who, uh, you know, may stand for that in some fashion. Yeah. But it's just not true that uh, the papacy is the church or the church reduces to the papacy. So, um, while there are some things that only popes can do, and, and, and that's good, uh, the next pope needs to take this business of empowering uh, the bishops, the clergy, religious, the laity, to all live our distinctive vocations in such a way that it's clear that we are Christ's church, and that fundamentally it is Christ's church. It's not our church. And that would be, that would be helpful in you know, a bit of downsizing uh, of, of the papacy. Papacy is a servant of the church and the gospel. It's not above the church and the gospel. Uh, the popes who have been so outstanding and, in recent centuries have, have fully understood that. Well, what's next? What are you working on now? 
Well, at the moment, I'm trying to help orchestrate the argument that this book, The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and Church and Mission, has uh, has started, which is good. I mean, I, I'm trying to, as I say, elevate the uh, uh, the argument. So I think I'll keep doing that for a while. Uh, we're all living under extremely bizarre circumstances these days. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I've got my weekly column in the Catholic Press. I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking about doing a new book in defense of the Second Vatican Council, uh, a topic that I address in in this book and right. in my previous book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History. But that argument has popped up again, and that's something I might turn my mind to uh, down the line. Meanwhile, we've got a what is going to be a cataclysmic, if not apocalyptic. <laughs> Uh, in its uh, rhetoric, uh, presidential campaign coming down the line in the United States, and I'll probably have a few things to say about that. <laughs> well, George Weigel, author of The Next Pope, The Office of Peter, and A Church in Mission, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Ken. It's always good to be with the DeNicola Center and its fine people. Thank you to George Weigel. You'll find links to The Next Pope and to the other books he mentioned in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>